Um, so just a little background, um, uh, just overview, I should say. Remember, um, shouldn't we worship the way God told us to worship rather than me inventing something pizzazzy every weekend? And in the Old Testament, um, the way you worship is what's called call Yahweh. You have the gathering, you have the reading of the word, the law, uh, you had a sacrifice, and then a dismissal. Four parts of Mass. Now we're doing the litur continuing with the Liturgy of the Eucharist. And the Liturgy of the Eucharist is, if you notice, when Jesus worships and he has a meal and he prays, it's always four verbs. Take, bless, break, share. Take, the offering, uh, uh, the bless is the Eucharistic prayer. We get that from... Um, the Passover structure. And then break is the Lamb of God. So we're going to move into that. But just also, uh, I don't know if I should get into this. Sure. A um, little bit more background. Um, I already went over this. The take, when you make an offering in bread and wine. Remember in the Old Testament, um, every Sabbath, people are commanded to offer bread and wine to God. And uh, that bread and wine is called the Lechem Ha Panin. God says, it's not because I need it. Um, you need to make, learn how to make your whole life this offering from God. So every Sabbath, we make an offering. And um, why bread and wine? Because when they go up in Sinai to look at God, what does the face of God look like? A meal, bread and wine. So bread and wine are how you bless. That's how um, the priest Melchizedek. Rest, blessed Abraham. So, yeah, on the take, the offering of the bread and wine, nah, that's because it says to do that. The Eucharistic prayer, um, remember, um, that's just a Passover. You're never allowed off the Passover. Moses says you must do this or you're cut off from us. Um, and the prophecy was is that when the Messiah came, he would uh, have a new Passover. And the Messiah would bring about the bread of life. So when Jesus says, this is my body, this is my bread, he said, my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink, I am the bread that came down from heaven, I am the living bread. So we believe that in the Eucharistic prayer. Um, but also there's another meal that the Jews were waiting for. We're going to get into that, the Lamb of God. But after the Eucharistic prayer, we have the Lord's Prayer. And I love that. So the Lord's Prayer, everybody knows it. But the problem is, in English, it's horribly translated. Um, so, like, I hate to say this, the Lord, Lord's Prayer is terribly translated. It's not, you know, in English, they'll say, give us each day our daily bread. That's not what Jesus said. What Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke is, give us the epiousias, which you translate the bread of life, or the bread of the eschaton, the bread from heaven. Um, that's what Jews were waiting for, was the bread from heaven, the bread of life. So before we receive communion, we have these two preparatory acts. One is that together we pray to receive the bread of life. And what happens? We do receive it in the Eucharist. Does that make sense? Um, so um, uh, anyhow, St. Augustine said, and I like this, that we pray for what is given in the Lord's Prayer and what is not in it, we shouldn't pray for. So the Lord's Prayer, we may have committed it to memory, but it takes a lifetime to really learn by heart. Now, here's the odd part, and I'll have a whole class on this sometime because I find this amazing, is that in the Lord's Prayer, there's seven commitments that you make in the Lord's Prayer. Why seven? I don't know. But what you notice is the number seven keeps coming up over and over and over. And in Hebrew, to make a covenant, um, how you say that in Hebrew is to cut seven. Um, the number seven keeps coming up when somebody makes a covenant with God. So there's seven days. Uh, in Judaism, there's seven feasts. Uh, Abraham, um, when he makes a covenant, uses seven lambs. Um, so when we pray the Lord's Prayer, um, we're actually praying the number seven that we enter into this covenant that the bread of life is this covenant that we're making with God. I love that. I love the fact that we pray for the bread and life, and then we receive it. 
Now, there has been a lot of, I consider, silliness arguing over what, what gesture you should have. Technically, when you pray, remember, I mentioned this before, this is a symbol of prayer in Catholicism and Judaism, not this. This is obedience or listening. So if you look at like ancient frescoes where they have all the saints and the Virgin Mary, they're surrounded by their altar and all their hands are open. Uh, Abraham, when he prays to God, what gesture does Abraham have? Anybody want to guess? <laughs> oh, good. Open arms, open hands. And when Jesus dies, what, what uh, position is his hands in? So I love even like ancient Christians uh, when they're being thro thrown in the circus Maximus to die and tore apart by animals. They tried to hold the sign of the cross, the figure of the cross, which is a sign of prayer, as long as possible. Um, so anyhow, um, I just love. And so people say, well, what? I just heard a lot of silliness, and I consider it absolute silliness, of priests saying, well, the priest should have their hands open and everybody else should have their hands like this. Really? Then why does the Virgin Mary and all the apostles have their hands open um, in these ancient frescoes? Because we knew the ancient church, everybody held this position. Does that make sense? And then you have this argument. I, once again, consider it a silly distraction. Well, should you hold each other's hands or not hold each other's hands? Um, I consider that a silly argument that doesn't even... If you don't want to hold hands, don't hold hands. There you go. But if you could say, you know, I, I could argue it either way. That's why I think it's silly. What was Moses, when he prayed with his hands open, was, was anybody holding his hands? Do you guys remember that in the Old Testament? Was anybody holding? Did somebody hold his hands? Yes, somebody did. Aaron and... Who was the other guy? I forget now. What? It wasn't Joshua. It was, what's it? Aaron and another guy. Um, <laughs> wasn't Caleb. Anyhow, um, they held his hands. And the reason, the symbol is that nobody really prays alone. We all need help. Um, so I just consider that a silly argument. I think the real focus should be you're praying for the bread of life in the Lord's Prayer. And as Augustine said, what is not in the Lord's Prayer, you shouldn't pray for. All we really, really need is communion with God. Uh, that will solve our problems. After that comes the kiss of peace, and you can say, well, why'd they put the kiss of peace there? Here's what's really interesting. In Catholicism, the kiss of peace has gone in two places. Like, if you ever go to the city of Milan in Italy, they have the city, the sign of peace at the very beginning of Mass. Um, and they're allowed to because from ancient times, that's how they did it. But if you remember in Matthew chapter 5, um, the, uh, the sign of peace expresses love for each other. Um, now, um, Christ says, if you have anything against your brother, go first before offering your gifts and make peace with your brother. So, uh, in certain rites in the Catholic Church, you would have it at the beginning of Mass. Um, we went the, with this Galatian sacramentary here in the West um, that we do it for communion. And the reason why is at the Lord's Prayer, you prayed that God forgive your sins as you forgive each other's sins. So if you're going to receive the bread of life, part of the one of the seven contracts that you're making with God is that you will forgive each other's sins. So you just prayed for the bread of life. You just prayed that God forgive your sins. So now you have to forgive other people's sins. So um, you have this sharing. It's actually the kiss of peace. But we're, you know, we're not really kissing people. We're not Italians. So like in the United States, we just shake hands. But it's not a shake hands like, oh, Fadalad McMillan, darn glad to meet you. Um, it's supposed to be this sign of peace and forgiveness. So in the Desert Fathers, they said that when you made the sign of peace, when you offered somebody the sign of peace, the first person you offer the sign of peace to, you imagine that that person is your worst enemy. 
So like for me, it's really easy. I offer a sign of peace to the deacon. So that really kind of matches up. Um, but I love that idea that um, uh, it's about if you're going to receive communion, first make sure that you've forgiven everybody else's sins or don't go to communion. If you really understand what's going on, it's not just saying good morning to the people around you. It's a sign of unity that I have nothing against anybody else. And let's face it, that makes me a liar every time I go to communion because I know I haven't fully forgiven people. Um, and the word peace, don't forget, the word peace, shalom, actually should be translated unity, uh, not serenity, not peace in the sense of serenity, that there'll be peace when all of us are united together. Um, so um, anyhow... Um, some stories that I think is kind of interesting, because I really do think, um, how dare we pray the Lord's Prayer and go to communion if we haven't really uh, forgiven other people? And I know I fall short, but you can't ask for the Lord's peace if we are have anger and division in our hearts towards other people. And there's this really interesting story I like that... Um, during World War II, members of the French underground were arrested by the German army and sentenced to a firing squad. And so on the evening before the, their execution, the prisoners were all Catholic, and they asked if a priest would come and celebrate the Eucharist. And the Germans told them, well, there is a priest who will come, but he's German. And so the French prisoners talked and said, well, we'll take a German priest. And then it happened that some of the guards were Catholic as well. So then the guards asked if they could celebrate, receive communion with the French prisoners who the next day were going to be executed. And so the French prisoners uh, gathered together and uh, took a vote. And I just like this. Um, after discussing the matter, they said, how can we hold anger towards the Germans the night before we die and receive communion? And they, they really did live out the Lord's Prayer. And their only request is that they had to leave their rifles outside. But if the Lord is supposed to make us instruments of peace, um, where there's hatred, let me sow love. And I just love the fact that the German, sorry, the French prisoners, before they died, celebrated the Eucharist. And they, their last act was to forgive the Germans by having a German priest and the guards receive communion with them. So that happens after the Eucharistic prayer to prepare us to receive communion. I just think we should take it more seriously. So um, there's the, of the meal, there's the take, the bless, and then the third is the break, um, the breaking of the bread. And at the Passover meal, I don't know if you've ever seen a Passover meal, but the it starts with holding up the bread and then breaking it, and the priest, sorry, not the priest, well, he's a priest. The father of the house um, hold, hides kind of a chunk of it to the end, and the Passover meal, after the eating of the herbs, comes the breaking of the bread. Now, in the book of Acts, Acts, Luke, sees it as the key to understanding the Eucharist, and the early term for the Eucharist was the breaking of the bread. That's why it calls it that. Just I mentioned that because I'll never forget, I had this parishioner in McCall who was furious because the books that we used for the missalettes at Mass was called The Breaking the Bread. And she was, she actually ended up quitting the parish over this because how dare you call the Eucharist The Breaking the Bread? So I said, well, in Acts, that's what they call The Breaking the Bread because it's done the Gospels. It's done in Acts. Um, and that's the earliest term for the Eucharist, was the breaking of the bread. She wasn't having any of that. Like, she left the parish over that. Like, not just misinformed, but just so convinced. But for Paul, on one of his first commentaries on the Mass, makes it clear that this is his insight, is the breaking of the bread. That there's really only one bread, Christ. There's only one host. And we're part of that body. If we've taken, taken part of the one host, no matter how many times you break up the host, if I get part and you get part and you get part, then we're now one. You can break the host in as many tiny pieces as you want, and it creates this unity. If the host is Christ and it's in me, does that make sense?
So I love that term, breaking of the bread. And the breaking of the bread, I want you to think about it in three symbols. First of all, think about the breaking of the bread makes us the body of Christ. So think about it as us. Early Christian communities saw the breaking the bread as, wow, you get part of the bread, it's a reminder that you are part of the body of Christ. Um, in the Eucharist, as Paul says, we are no longer Jew or Gentile, male or female, free or slave, that we're all one host. So like the fish and loaves story, where, you know, no matter how much they break it apart, there's always room. The breaking the bread symbolizes kind of this acting out of the fish and loaves, that no matter how many small pieces of hosts there are, um, we become one body. Um, all our different differences don't matter because we're completely one. It shows the irreverence of human and historical and social differences. The only thing that matters that, is that we're partaking uh, partaking in the breaking of the bread. So if a little bit of it is in me and you, then all of us are one. So it's the making of the body of Christ. Secondly, the breaking of the bread, it symbolizes Christ's body being broken on the cross, which I always like that one. But the other part about Christ's body being broken on the cross, it means we're supposed to be broken that were the broken sign. God uses broken signs. Uh, it takes broken soil to produce crops. Uh, a broken cloud produces rain. Uh, broken grain becomes bread. Um, broken bread gives strength. So a broken alabaster jar is what brought forth the perfume. So true spiritual strength lies not in holding it all together, but actually in letting yourself being broken open. So the paradox of Christianity is to be strong, we actually have to be broken apart. So every farmer and gardener knows that good soil is broken soil. You know, that's turned over, that's uh, broken through the cold, hard winter where it became hard. It's broken open so that it can receive the spring rains, um, and then things can grow. So it's our brokenness that produces life. You know, the wife who, um, in my former parish, this one wife lost her husband. And um, she was, had a great marriage. But with that brokenness, she started this grief, grief support group that really, it was so big, we had to start two grief support groups. So many people, every, we had a lot of funerals. It was a huge parish. I loved how her brokenness at the loss of her husband created kind of this ministry of hope and healing for other people. Um, I celebrated the 70th wedding anniversary. 70, that's a long time. Um, and it was this great love story where um, uh, it, this man was amazing. He actually died. But um, I loved how he said that uh, his wife broke him open. And when we said broken open, I was thinking of the soil, but I was also thinking of Christ's body on the cross, the host being broken open. And here's the part. I was kind of surprised because this man was a saint. He was a saint. Um, except I was kind of shocked because, you know, after his funeral, his family told me stories. Well, he grew up in a terrible household, horrible, abusive father. And for his first couple of years of marriage, he was very difficult at times to live with <laughs> and i it's just amazing that he ends up as um um he really in my even his wife said he ended up a saint he was very difficult to begin with but like that's the broken opening that i mean and if christ's body is broken on the cross and we receive the broken body of christ then our real power is when we're broken open do you get the symbolism there um Okay, so you have the breaking the bread, and then the priest takes a little tiny bit of it and puts it into the precious blood. Now, I told you, most of, the, most of what we do comes from the Bible. This does not. Um, but what it comes from is that, and you still kind of get this, the Pope would send out a host to the, his surrounding parishes uh, because some people would think, well, the, 
the host consecrated at the Pope's mass is more powerful than just, I know, it's, a, no, it's all Christ that consecrates it. One part of the Christ is not holier than another part of Christ. But that, that actually started because some people couldn't tell that, no, it's, the Eucharist is the Eucharist. It's all holy. Does that make sense? But you also put part of the wine also as a, um, I should say, pressed blood. Because some people, and this is a really bizarre one, some people think that the host is somehow more holy than the precious blood. They're both Eucharist. But when you say Eucharist, most people just think of in the form of bread. Um, they forget about the cup. So you have this co-mingling of um, the host and the body. Uh, so just that was this pedagogical. It's not really from Scripture. Then the Lamb of God. Now, um, I have to say I love the Lamb of God. I'm probably going to get too technical, so I apologize. But the Lamb of God is a huge theme in um, the Bible. So remember I said the Jews wait for a lot of stuff. The Jews were waiting for the Messiah, but the Messiah would bring about the bread of life. So they're, they're waiting for the bread of life. They're waiting for the uh, Ark of the Covenant to return. So they weren't just waiting for Christ. They're waiting for everything. And one of the things that the Jews are waiting for is the Lamb of God. So in the book of Genesis, God promises the Lamb of God. So uh, he promised one day to celebrate, who put that there? Um, the uh, Lamb of God. So he says it to Abraham, where it gets translated, um, I like that. The Hebrew can be translated two ways. Uh, it says, God will provide the Lamb of God himself, or it says, can be translated, God will provide himself as the Lamb of God. Both translations are correct. We Catholics would obviously go with he will provide the Lamb of... Yes, Chris. No. No, that's not their interpretation. Their interpretation is that God would send the Lamb of God uh, himself. A lamb. Uh, and if you ate that lamb, like they would eat the Lamb of God at Passover, but that's not the Lamb of God that God would send. That's just a Lamb of God. The Lamb of God would one day, everybody would eat from, and we will truly be free from death and persecution and all united together. That's what they're waiting for. Now, they probably thought it was a real lamb, but the translation is that God will send the Lamb of God uh, himself, uh, that God will be the Lamb of God. That's how we interpret that. And, you know, if you, have you ever seen Jewish worship where they take a ram's horn, it's called a shofar, and they blow it, you know, it's not really pretty sound, but um, nobody has ever seen that? Get out, people. Watch movies. Um, well, the blowing of the shofar, the ram's horn, it actually comes about because it's supposed to, when you hear it, it's blown so that it's supposed to remind God, you promise one day to bring us the Lamb of God. So it's kind of key because when John the Baptist sees Jesus, what does he say? Behold, there's the Lamb of God. Um, you know, the war is over. All of us will be united. They were expecting the Lamb of God. They weren't expecting the Lamb of God to be the Messiah. That's what John the Baptist is saying. They're just expecting the Lamb of God to be a meal, not that the meal would be a person. So from the beginning of religion, humanity has been waiting for the Lamb of God. And what we're saying at Mass is the same thing John is saying. Here is the Lamb of God. Here's the Lamb of God. The war's over. Um, is over and not over. That's why when you look in the book of Revelation, what is heaven like in the book of Revelation? It's a feast of the Lamb of God. Um, where all people are truly united with God and each other. That's where we share in the Lamb of God. And we'd say the Lamb of God is Christ. Now, you also have the Lamb of God in the Passover meal. Um, now, I just want to explain this. Hopefully I won't lose you. But um, I love this. So 
one of the objects on the Passover table is called the Zero, Zero, sorry, Zero Roth. Zero, Zero Roth. And not Zero Roth. Zero Roth. Okay, my Hebrew is terrible. Anyhow, um, in Genesis, the Zeroah is what, according to the Hebrew scriptures, God made heaven and earth. So how did God make heaven and earth? Through the Zeroah. When God brought the Hebrew out of Egypt on Passover with miracles and wonders, it's written that God did so by the Zeroah. So what's the Zeroah? Okay, just not going to tell you yet. Also, in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, it contains this prophecy that the one who will be wounded and crushed for our sins by his death will bring about healing, life, and redemption. And it ends with this question, who has believed this report? And who has the Zerorah of the Lord been revealed? So the Zerorah is one who dies for our sins, one who redeems us from our sins, created the universe, dies for our sins. But remember I said the Zerorah is an object on the Passover table. And what it is, is the bone of a lamb. So what does a Zerorah have to do with the death of the lamb? The death of the lamb is the death of the Messiah that is Isaiah 53 is talking about. But what the Zerorah is before, um, what was it before? God created the universe. So the word Zerorah, what it means is strong arm. That's technically in Hebrew what it means. It's not a bone. So why in the Passover table do they have the bone of the Lamb of God and call it the strong arm of God? Because um, etzim is how you say bone. So it's not a bone. It's a strong arm of God. Um, that's the Zerorah. So it's more meaningful because, think about this, it says that the, um, the lamb can't have any broken bones. Christ on the cross had no bones broken. He's the lamb of God. Um, so the point being is this. The lamb, the self-sacrifice of the lamb is the power of God. The strong arm of God, the uh, Zorah, is a self-sacrificing lamb. That's the power of God. Um, the power to save God, or the God's power to save, this, his strong arm, is the lamb, one who sacrificed himself. So think about the book of Revelation. In the middle of heaven is an altar, and on the altar is the slain but living lamb of God. Not just a lamb, but a wounded lamb, a lamb that will sacrifice itself. And it's really a great chapter because John, before he sees the lamb of God, it happens several times. His back is turned, and he hears that the, Ju the Lion of Judah, the Lion of Judah is the power of God. Uh, the, so remember, Zorah means strong arm of God. The, the Lion of Judah, the most powerful thing, and he turns around to see the most powerful thing, and you know what it looks like? A slain but living lamb. That the power of God is in God's ability to sacrifice himself in love for others. No. So we don't worship a lion, because if we worship a lion, think what that would do to our theology. That the power of God is that I'm going to dominate you like a predator, like an apex predator. The power of God is God can sacrifice and sacrifice and give and give and give. Why a lamb? Lambs are considered the most gentle, even like a kitty cat has claws. Um, but a lamb, you know, it keeps giving of itself. It gives its wool. Does that make sense? So what is the strong arm of God? Self-sacrificing love. Uh, so I just, I love that. So I love um, where um, you hold it up and says, behold the Lamb of God. It's saying that the meat, Christ is the meal, but it's also saying this is the real power that rules the universe, is self-sacrificing love. And remember the angel of death and the Lamb of God? That the angel of death, when it passes over Egypt, um, death is rendered powerless by the Lamb of God. The most powerful thing in the world is the power of death. But the Lamb of God takes away the power. So the angel of death um, can't do anything against the power of the Lamb of God. So um, 
the angel of death was sent over Egypt to judge the people. Uh, but not just the Egyptians, also the Hebrews. So God, oh, sorry, Moses tells them, listen, get under the blood of the lamb. As long as you put on your doorpost and are under it, the angel of death can't enter. But if you're outside, you may be Hebrew, but if you're outside, you'll die like the Egyptians. So God is not a racist. God is not just going to save the Hebrew. Does that make sense? God's going to save anyone who's under the Lamb of God, or the blood of the Lamb. Um, so being Jewish will not save you. The only thing that will save you is the Lamb of God. Um, so when we take in the Lamb of God, another image of the soul is your house. Now our house has the Lamb of God in it, so death can't enter. Does that make sense? Um, uh, so I love the fact that the Lamb of God in the book of Revelation, it's on the altar in the center, but it's also in all the saints and angels. That makes them free from death. Does that make sense? Did I lose you on it? Because I'm kind of getting blank looks like you're falling asleep. I did, didn't I? Oh, well, okay. Um, I'll skip that, but I did. Uh, but I also like to just remember, the Lamb of God remembers the future as well. Um, uh, so the last part, just I know I'm hidden lamp. How do you enter into a covenant with God? Through a meal. And the Lamb of God is entering uh, into a covenant with God. Remember, Moses says, you eat this, you eat the Lamb of God, you are in a moral relationship with God. Something will be demanded of you, that you're in this covenant. And I tell a story because I think it's funny. In my former parish, we had um, several ministers over the years from other religions who converted and one was this formal evangelical pastor who really gives this very humorous story saying that you know he studied the theology of the covenant he could list out the covenants of the old testament um he could tell you how to say it in hebrew he could tell you the ritual for the lamb of god um and it's through the lamb of god you enter into a covenant so he said he had all this study and knowledge and can tell you about it, but at their service, they never had a meal. They never had the Lamb of God. And he says, now it seems so strange that, you know, he would talk about the covenant, but not the ritual that enters you into the covenant. Does that make it like, was just, I just think that's kind of funny. Um, that, you know, he said their worship was really all lecture and music and sometimes tears, but it wasn't really entering into the covenant with the Lamb of God. That's what we're doing. And the position for the Lamb of God, like I mentioned this, every gesture, every posture means something, right? So standing, I mentioned this before, you stand when we pray because you're entering into a commitment with God. You stand for the gospel because it's a contract. You're going to act that gospel out. You don't stand for the first reading um, because you're, we're not obligated to it. But if you notice... How does God demand that the Hebrew uh, celebrate the Lamb of God? In what position? Standing. Because he said, you're going to put this into action. When you eat this, you will be set free. And so you're going to put freedom into action. So uh, you have to stand for the Lamb of God because you're going to put it into action. In the book of Revelation, when the Lamb of God is going around, what posture are they in? Standing, because they're putting freedom, love, all that stuff, into action. That's a place where we really live it. But here's a strange question. If that's true, then why, why was Jesus, when he celebrated the Lamb of God, the Passover, what position was he at at the Last Supper? Reclining, yeah, sitting. Well, he's not following the Bible, right? But why? Well, the reason why is that if you're in, outside of uh, Israel, you would stand for the Lamb of God because you're on your way. You're going to put freedom into action, but we're really not free until we reach the promised land. Does that make sense? Uh, so they're in the promised land. Where is there to go? Well, really heaven. But the idea is that, no, if you're in the promised land, you would sit. So sitting means we've arrived. Does that make sense? So why aren't they sitting in heaven? Well, because that also means 
you're going to put it into action. So uh, now, my point being is that how do you eat the Lamb of God? Standing. Because you're going to put it into action. Uh, does that make sense? So, um, well, that gets into a question, what about kneeling? Because the bishop just changed it a couple years ago, that we're going to kneel when the priest says, behold the Lamb of God. Well, where did that come from? Well, then you have to explain what kneeling means. Where that came from, to be honest, the bishop, I think it's kind of funny. Uh, some college girl wrote him a letter saying it'd be more reverent if we knelt for the Lamb of God. So he said, sure, okay, everybody kneel for the Lamb of God. Really, you could do either. Um, but kneeling, if you look in the Bible, kneeling first symbolizes penance. Anybody who's sinned, they kneel, right? But also, kneeling is a sign of adoration. Um, uh, Job, he does kneel out of penance, but he also kneels out of adoration. Um, Peter kneels before Jesus, yes, out of penance, but also adoration. So kneeling... It depends how you want to use it. Is adoration or penance? So you could kneel when the priest holds that up. That is permissible. But you're not really supposed to kneel when you receive communion because you're supposed to be putting it into action. Now, actually, this sounds kind of strange. During the Eucharistic prayer, everybody's supposed to be standing. That's actually the ancient rite. For, but if you notice, we kneel for half of the Eucharistic prayer. Um, why do we do that? Well, actually, it was a holdover from the Irish. That the Irish started that kneeling uh, during the Eucharistic prayer, um, half of it, was a sign of adoration. And let's face it, all the great things came from the Irish. No, I'm serious. The tin whistle? Um, <laughs> um, so I make a joke with a friend of mine who's Italian. I said, what, what the heck has Italians ever given the world? Food and great architecture and, you know, beauty. We gave the tin whistle. <laughs> Anyhow, um, you know, Irish flooded the shores in the United States, right? So that influence was very heavy. So then everybody at Mass started to kneel for the Eucharistic prayer. And then it just, once America did it, uh, it became kind of, uh, America, whether you like it or not, the United States, is a powerhouse. What's done here is followed a lot. So I have no problem with it. But we kneel as, not as penance, but adoration. Uh, so that's what kneeling is. My problem is, in the seminary, um, some seminarians were making this, um, dramatic show of piety uh, by trying to kneel. But the problem is that like one elderly nun who was just a saint loved her. If you kneel, then I have to walk over you. Um, and they would kneel for communion and kneel after communion. You don't want like 70-year-old nuns having to step over people that are kneeling. And then um, the abbot there gave this great speech where he said, you know, when we go to communion, we don't go to communion as individuals. After communion, um, that's not the time to show off just how holy you are for somebody else. We go in unity. We go in uniformity. And so the rubrics are written that what I do, you do. What you do, you do. We're all together at one family. Some people aren't... You do not use the liturgy to show other people how holy you are. Does that make sense? Um, so uh, that's the gesture. Sitting, one last one, is, and it sounds strange, but you know how you guys love the book of Leviticus? Um, in the book of Leviticus, after a sacrifice, the priest is ordered to sit because um, sitting is a sign that the sacrifice is over. So the priest, technically, after the Eucharist, is supposed to sit and pause. If you notice, Jesus, when he ascends, when he ascends into heaven, what posture does he have once he's gone to heaven? Sit at the right hand of God. It means the sacrifice is over. Um, so the priest sitting is actually a sign that the sacrifice is complete. So that's just gestures. Um, I just love that stuff. 
the other stuff that I really, really love in the Lamb of God is not just the gestures, but um, he, the priest holds up the Eucharist and says, Behold the Lamb of God. Blessed are those who are called to this supper. And that happens twice in the Bible. You know, John the Baptist calls him the Lamb of God, but in heaven, the heaven, the Eucharistic banquet of heaven, is the Lamb of God. So it says that. The other part is, uh, behold the Lamb of God, blessed are those who are called to this supper. Um, that line is in the Gospel of Luke. In meal number six, and I mentioned this, meal number six, um, the Pharisees are upset because Jesus welcomes, you know, the tax collectors and prostitutes and the Minnesotans. And the Pharisees get really upset that these undesirables are at the table. And then Jesus gives six parables saying, oh, if you don't like these people, you're not going to like heaven. Heaven has everybody in it. And he gives six different parables that if, or if you're really one of the parables, there are six lost and found, or three lost and found, three surprise. That surprise, you don't like those people, uh, they're in heaven. You yourself won't want to be in heaven. So um, anyhow, so that's the blessed are those who uh, eat with you. Um, then when John, in the book of Revelation, sees heaven, behold the Lamb of God. And then there's a silence. And somebody cries out, blessed are those who are called to this supper. The blessed are those who are called to this supper. That little phrase means, you know, if, think about what that means. I can't help but love all people. I don't even care if you're a Minnesotan. You could be a Vikings fan. And the power of the Eucharist is strong. He's a Viking. Oh, he's not there. Oh, <laughs> oh he left. Dang it, I was making these insults. Um, Wes is a Viking fan. Um, uh, like My point being is that all those things that divide us, all those petty little hatreds, blessed are those, those are people who want all people united together. Does that make any sense? Um, the opposite is is a Pharisee who we have to keep dividing people between, does that make any sense? So I love that acting out. So that's the third. That fourth is um, share. So that's communion. That's pretty obvious. Um, uh, I have a lot more to go. I'm not going to finish it in 10 minutes. So I'm just going to try and stick. Uh, but we know from ancient documents, going to communion, the ancient gesture is open hands, where your hands make a cross. We actually have the documents. And so it makes a cross, it makes a throne, and it symbolizes your hearts. Um, so it's open. But remember, we go to communion not as a bunch of individuals. What's the difference between you know going through a checkout or self service restaurant versus sitting down at a table, we all go together. Um, and I meant that because this does drive me up a wall. Even somebody from this parish said this, where they said, listen, when I go to Mass, I focus on the altar. I don't really care about the people around me. That's a dangerous thing to say, because that's what Protestants believe, that you go to heaven alone. Does that make sense? But it's what's on the altar that makes us the body of Christ. That's a big difference between evangelical worship and Catholic worship. To have communion with Christ is to have communion with everybody else. I cannot possess Christ by myself. To have communion with Christ is to have communion with other people. Um, so um, just we go to communion as a group. And then you can say, well, communion on the tongue seems to have started in the 13th century in Paris because people's hands were so dirty. Um, that's where communion on the tongue started. Although there is some precedent before that as well. But in the West, it was 13th century in France. Um, I don't really think it matters where, how you go to communion. I, matter, I think it matters how you go to communion in your heart. That if you think it's just between you and Jesus, that's Protestant. Now, Here's the other part, and it gets a little difficult, but um, when you go to communion, um, tell me if I lose you on this. Receiving the body of Christ is one contract. Receiving from the 
covenant, sorry, the cup is a different covenant. If you receive the body of Christ, um, and no way, I should stop. They're both the Eucharist. They're both the real presence. So does that make sense? So they're both the real presence. But technically, I'm just telling you technical stuff. As long as you receive one of them, you'll receive communion. Does that make sense? But liturgically, receiving the host is making a contract that you will be the body of Christ in the world. You'll be with us, united with us. That's receiving the host. Receiving from the cup, the blood, um, that's a different contract that has a lot more symbol. Do you mind if I go over that? So that symbol, I just absolutely love. And cup is a huge theme in the Bible. A huge, huge theme is a cup. There's, and there's several different kind of cups. Um, like the Passover meal. The Passover meal, you have four cups. So let's act this out, because um, I think you guys look sleepy. Imagine um, we're at a Passover meal. So it starts with the mother pressing the, lighting the candles and pressing the light to her eyes, symbolizes the Holy Spirit. The Shechina, that's a feminine, so the mother lights the candle and presses the lights to her eyes. Then the father says this, everybody hold up your cup. Um, the father says this prayer. Now, the prayer um, is for the gift of life. And then everybody drinks. But it's wine. Um, and then um, the Exodus story is told. And then once again, a prayer is said. Everybody holds up your cup. But this time, it's not the gift of life. It's a gift of life saved. And then everybody drinks. Then at the end of the meal, they do a lot of drinking. Um, at the end of the meal, it's, a, it's not just life, the gift of life and the gift of life saved. It's a gift of life united together. And I forget the exact words, but it's a, next year in Jerusalem. And then, you, oh, no, oh, sorry. That's your, what you guys say. Um, I don't remember the exact words, but so hold up your cup. Um, from the four corners of the earth, may God unite us together. From, and it's all about unity. Uh, you know, next year in Jerusalem, next year in Jerusalem, three times, and then everybody drinks. Then Jesus takes a fourth cup that only the presider was supposed to drink from. Now think about this. We're all drinking from our individual cups. Then he takes the presider's cup and he says this prayer. And they would have known that, oh my gosh, he's changing it. And remember, the sign of the Messiah is that he'd bring about a new Passover. And that's what he does. And he takes a cup and he says this new prayer, except now... Um, to share in this cup is to share in the life of Christ, his life. Does that make sense? So it's not just the gift of life, gift of life saved, gift of life united. Now it's to share in his life. That's the fourth cup that we receive. No longer individual cups. Does that make sense? It's the one cup that we're... And so I love that. Um, so it's not just like... Um, so. It's his, but the fourth cup is this. It's not just the gift of life, but the gift of life poured out for others. That's what Christ is doing. To share in his, to take from the cup, is this promise that your life will be poured out in love for other people. Receiving the host symbolizes you will be the body of Christ. Receiving from the cup means you'll pour out your life for others. So this strange story, I love this story. Um, this woman in my former parish, this grandmother, um, she was dying. I was actually at St. Mark's other parish, but uh, went over to anoint her. And amazing story. So it was a great anointing where she's there and her three kids are there and her grandkids and great-grandkids, everybody's there and she's dying. And um, she's literally dying. And I get there just in time to get her anointed. But... Um, kind of interesting life story because um, she was a young woman in World War II where her, her sister was pregnant and um, uh, everything's getting bombed out. Germany's falling apart and her sister uh, goes into labor 
and she couldn't get her sister to the hospital, but she has the baby, but then bleeds to death, which is a terrible way to die. So what does this young woman do? She takes her niece and raises it as herself. Then after in Germany, there's so many orphan kids, she takes two other orphan kids and just takes them as her own. And she's this young woman. Everything is horrible in Germany after the war. And like the old woman said that uh, she'd tell him, she said, I did what I had to, to get you food. She'd get up early in the morning and she'd, to be honest, steal milk or eggs, whatever she had to, to feed the kids. And then eventually come to the United States. They end up in Meridian. Um, her kids are here, her grandkids are here. Um, and um, like her whole life was taking care of these three kids that technically weren't hers. So now she's dying and the three kids are there and she's reverted back to speaking in German. And I show up to anoint her, but all she's doing after the anointing is speaking in German to the kids uh, who are you know, now older than I am. Um, and um, they're talking to her in German. And so like, I'm kind of, what is she saying? And so this daughter, the oldest daughter um, says, well, we're asking her, tell us about your life. Tell us about when you're a young woman. And she keeps repeating something in German. I said, what is she saying? And she says, she just keeps saying, my greatest honor was to serve you. And then she dies. Like, that was the last thing she said. Um, her life was not spent taking care of herself. Like, and so when she died, I remember like, oh, she earned that cup. Like, when you drink from the cup, you promise like Christ that, ah, if the presence of Christ is in you, you too will pour out your life for other people. She's an image of the cup. So the cup is a passion of Christ, but the cup is also a wedding symbol. I told you, the cup has a, oh, we're out of time, but I'm still going to tell you this. Um, the cup is a wedding symbol. As well. Are we meeting next week? Oh, I guess we're not. Okay, so I'm not going to get through all the symbols of the Mass, I hate to tell you, because I'm only at communion. Um, but can I explain the wedding cup? Um, so the wedding cup, is uh, oh so sorry uh, in Judaism um, the wedding rite is based on the Sinai covenant so it's not like they had a wedding rite and then um, the Sinai covenant mimics it it's actually the opposite the Sinai covenant mimics a wedding where um, you have to know Jewish weddings um, it starts with uh, an offering of a cup. So I won't not do it to you. Um, oh, you, you're a drinker. Um, if, <laughs> if the groom offers you a glass of wine and you drink it, you're in the first stage of marriage. So the first and last thing is the cup at a Jewish wedding. So drinking from the cup is um, a wedding symbol. So got to tell you this is... Um, I'm going to come up with these altar panels for our altar, but on one side, for Lent, I'm going to have the crown of thorns in the middle. I'm going to have this white garment on the side and a cup on the other side. All three are wedding symbols. So the cup, the day you get married, starts with a cup, and then you get to wear a crown. The only day in your life, if you're not a king or queen, that you get to wear a crown is your wedding day. Christ, he offers a cup. Christ what is he wearing? Crown of thorns. So, but that's a wedding. The crown of thorns is also a wedding symbol. And the day you get married, you get to wear this white garment. It's also what the high priest would wear. Um, it's called a katoon. So um, I mentioned that because guess what Christ is wearing at the Last Supper? A katoon. He's wearing a wedding dress um, at the cross and at the Last Supper. So if you get what's going on, oh, the Last Supper is a wedding between us and God. Does that make sense? So when you receive communion from the cup, you're getting married to Christ. It's this um, symbol of love. Don't you love that? That's why at Lent I want to have, uh, during Lent, the crown of thorns, the cup, and the wedding garment 
Because no, to participate in the sacrifice of Christ is um, a wedding symbol. The other cup that comes up a lot is a cup of wrath mentioned in the Bible. Yes, the cup is also a cup of wrath. The problem is wrath in English does not, or Hebrew, does not what it means in English. Wrath in English means like hatred. That's not what it means. In Hebrew, it'd be really translated passion, but it's all, it's passion, but it's painful. Yes. That's the cup we're talking about. It's the cup of wrath that, oh, it's going to be painful. Uh, does that make sense? So do you remember also like Jesus when he talks to James and John? James and John, um, they want to be one of his left, one of his right. When he comes into his kingdom, they want power. And he says, really? He said, can you drink from the cup of pain that I'm going to drink from? And they said, oh, absolutely. Um, so the cup of wrath is a cup of suffering. Does that, and he says, can you be baptized in the same bath of pain that I'm, oh, you betcha, you betcha we can. Um, anyhow, um, or at the Last Supper, remember Peter draws the sword and cuts off the ear of the servant and says, should I not drink from the cup of suffering that the Father has prepared for me? So, I like, I, I think there's something weird if, you want to go through pain and suffering, if you get off on that, that's weird. Does that make sense? Like, I don't want that. But to drink from the Eucharistic cup means I will do that. Not that I want to do that, I don't like doing that, but for other people, I will suffer. So even in the early church, um, the, one of the words for the Eucharistic cup was the dreaded cup full of power. Why did they call the Eucharistic cup? If it's a cup of life, why would you call it the dreaded cup? Because, yeah, you'll, you'll suffer for other people. Does, does that make any sense? Um, nobody should really want suffering. Um, or the, when they talk about the martyr's cup, that's Christ's cup. If, um, does that make any sense? So, um, like I don't really want to be pain. But I love that idea that, wow, drinking from the cup is a contract of... Um, uh, to pour out your life. It is a wedding cup. It is a cup of life. And it's also the cup of suffering. Uh, I'm not going to kvetch and moan that my life is terrible suffering. That's the deal I made. Does that make sense? Um, so, um, uh, anyhow, I just love all those symbols. But um, even like the clinking of the, the I think this, I think of this some, the clinking of, you know how you say cheers and you you know, that was because at meals, somebody could poison your wine. And what you do is pour part of your wine in everybody else's so the host would die. If I poisoned yours, I'm dying too. So, but if I trusted you that you didn't poison my wine, then all I, I, I won't let you pour it in. I'll just clink because I trust you. Anyhow, um, I love that there's this whole symbolism of cups. Um, the most important part is that it's a commitment. And that's what non-Catholics, when you go to communion, they don't understand that, like, well, I'm just as good as you. Why can't I go to communion? But you're promising a lot of things. You're promising to be the German grandmother where you can no longer think about yourself. Um, you're making all these covenants. Um, so I, I'm going too much. Uh, but I will say this also. I love studying positive psychology. And in positive psychology, they did this study on huge positive psychology is why do some people end up um, so happy and other people, and usually after 70, it's a clear choice, other people end up bald and bitter. Um, what choices did they make? Um, and they, there's all these things they noticed. All of them, I think, match with Christianity. But one is, and this sounds kind of strange, the way of happiness, to get to happy, don't make your decisions on what will make you happy. That's, <laughs> even the Greeks used to say, you try and make your decisions based on that, you will never end up at happy. And one of the ways you have to be able to think is on commitments, that I will make my commitments and live them out no matter how much suffering is involved,
people who have that philosophy end up at happy. It's ironic, you know what I mean? Like, well, what do you mean? I'm willing to accept pain, but I'm going for happy. <laughs> you only get through happy by drinking from the cup of suffering. Um, anyhow, um, okay, I've gone way over, so I apologize. Uh, but my point being is, I guess I, in a class, I don't, there's a, I, the fourth part of mass, which happens really quick, I didn't go over a lot of symbols, but how about this? From now on, start thinking like, why does he do that at mass? And why does that, why is that? And as I said, 90% of it comes from the Bible. Um, and what I really want is people to be able to pray the symbols where um, like sometimes the cup just overwhelms me. Uh, especially when you have days of suffering, it's like, huh, yeah, that's the cup. Or sometimes with love, like, I am married to God. Or behold, Lamb of God. No, I have no prejudice towards anybody. You had a question? Okay, so she said um, when she was a little girl, she was told to say this prayer after receiving the cup. That was a tradition or custom, I should say. And I think it's a very good custom, but technically it's not part of any, it's of that cultural time period that gave you that devotion. That's not imposed upon all Christians. Or here's another one, which... My mother told me when I was a kid that I remember thinking that's ridiculous, so I quickly ignored it. But my mother told me that you should never bite down on the Eucharist. Well, that's crazy talk. I mean, even as a kid, I was like, oh my God, she's crazy. Um, well, that actually comes from the French. Um, it's an 18th century French thing about, well, you wouldn't want to hurt Jesus. Um, that's where my, and my mother didn't know that, but that's where it comes from. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, because I think kind of a pious, er, yearning devotion, reverence is all of it's good. But after 2,000 years, we have a lot of those type of Eucharistic devotions that come and go with one country or one time period. I think it's all good if it creates greater reverence. The only danger is saying, you must say that prayer. No, no, that's what I did. Like, or my mother saying that she wouldn't bite down on the Eucharist because she didn't want to hurt Jesus. I think it's crazy, but I think, think it shows how serious my mother is about the presence of Christ. What's that? I know, like I tried once. I remember it stuck to the roof of my mouth. Um, that's when I decided crazy. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, so it's a custom uh, that um, uh, when you get ordained, that your parents buy you a chalice. So that's the chalice my mother bought me. So that's why I use that one. Also, the Irish often would buy a chalice for your wedding day. Um, so, because the chalice is a wedding symbol. And then the couple, like, I was talking to this family who... They have all these chalices that have been passed down from previous married couples. Um, like, I just think that's a really interesting wedding gift, but it's also an ordination gift. So mine is, it's supposed to look like beaten gold. So remember the, um, the, the ch chalices in the book of Leviticus or the uh, tabernacle or anything? It was a, supposed to be beaten gold, so incredibly pure. But the idea is this, is that um, we're like gold ore, and God will refine us in his fire to become pure gold. But also it's beaten. Like, I've been beat up by life, mostly by the deacon. But um, that's right, all those beatings shape me into a chalice. Like, so the chalice is me. Does that make sense? Then it has six gold crosses, sorry, sorry six red crosses, um, that symbolizes sacrifice. I'll get the seventh one when I get to heaven. Um, but I, like, I love how all these little symbols in a chalice as well. Um, so like, 
as Catholics, boy, we pray a lot with symbols. And the sad part is, like, with the evangelicals, like the minister, remember I told you the minister who said, I'm exhausted. Every week I have to think something else. Um, like, I love that we pray using signs and symbols, and they come from the Bible. So, you had a question again? Oh, that wasn't the wedding of Cana. I said at Jewish weddings. The groom gives the bride a, a, a chalice to drink from, a cup. Oh, so that's, that's not a wedding symbol. Um, that's a wedding reception symbol. <laughs> so um, the wine at Cana is this. The prophecy is that when the Messiah comes, there'll be this overflow of wine. Um, so he's at a wedding party, and um, they have no wine. So Mary says, they have no wine. And he knows what she means. <laughs> Get the Messianic banquet started. The Messianic banquet, there'd always be this overflow of wine. The wine doesn't start to flow at Cana. The wine actually starts to flow at the Last Supper. Does that make sense? Um, but we'd say, that's why John calls it, not a miracle. John calls it a sign. It's pointing to the Last Supper. Does that make sense? But it's also pointing to the fact that that's why he says, it's woman, it's not my hour, which is, I, I love that line because even as a little kid, I'll never forget, I was in Missoula, Montana, and I heard that, and I thought, well, that's rude. I mean, and I remember thinking, that was rude. Like if my mother said, go clean up your room, and I said, woman, what's your concern to me? It is not my hour. It would be my hour right then. Um, but like when he says woman, he's talking about Eve, the return to the Garden of Eden. And when he says it's not my hour, he's talking about um, the Last Supper and the crucifixion. That's when the wine will flow. So he's not being smarky. So it's not time for the wine to flow. But... He does this miracle as a foreshadowing of the Eucharistic wine. Does that make sense? All right. Well, we're over. Sorry, I apologize. But next week, we're going to do the archangels because their feast is coming up. So God bless. Talk to you later.